Let's open up the Bible. Amen. The word is so good. Let's open up to Revelation chapter 3. And we're going to be in verses 7 through 13 this morning. 7 through 13. Sixth letter. Written by our Lord to the seven churches. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7, says, And to the angel in the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens up and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, Holy One, the one who is righteous and set apart. We come before you as our Lord over this church, over this body of believers, and obviously over your church worldwide. And we, and we pray that these words would not fall on deaf ears, Lord, that you would encourage us, Lord, where we need to be encouraged, Lord, that our hearts would be quickened as we await your return. The kingdom will be established, Lord, uh, and this world will be set right side up. And so, Lord, we wait for that day, and we ask, Lord, uh, that we would have ears to hear and that we would have uh, faith to walk. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the Lord here is writing to uh, the church in Philadelphia, uh, not in Pennsylvania, uh, just to let you know, Philadelphia, just a little bit of background in, in Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia was named after its founder, um, Attalus II. He was nicknamed Philadelphos, basically, because he loved his brother so much. So he had a brother, and he loved him a lot. And, and so uh, that's what the name means, basically, brotherly love. And we know Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love, although their fans don't really share that sometimes. But at the, point, at the time of this letter, the Philadelphia was the youngest of the seven cities being written to. Uh, the city of Philadelphia, along with uh, the six other cities, obviously we know they're in, in modern Turkey, uh, Asia Minor is what they called it then. And the city was built in a strategic location along one of the greatest highways, and so it was right next to a major trade route. Uh, and really it was like the gateway from Europe to, uh, to the east, and so they were just at a strategic point there. Um, on that trade route. But its its original purpose, the city of Philadelphia, was, was to be, a, uh, was to be a, a, a missionary city, but for Hellenism, for, for Greek culture, for Greek thought, for Greek, Greek emphasis uh, throughout, to, to move out of Europe down into the east. And it seemed to it, it, it succeed 
pretty well. But Philadelphia was, was also, because it was so gr- heavily influenced by Greek culture, it was called Little Athens. There were, because when people went there, they would go, oh, man, look at all the temples and the Greek culture. It just looks like a Little Athens. And so they had a heavy Greek culture there. But the city benefited greatly from agriculture because the soil around it had like a lot of volcanic ash because they lived in a volcanic region. And so similar to our region, they were known for their agriculture. They actually produced wine there. And so this is the Walla Walla of the uh, seven churches, basically. But as you can imagine, living in a volcanic area has its downside. A lot of earthquakes Uh, in 17 AD, they, along with Sardis, got taken out. Earthquakes shook the place, the whole city uh, fell down. They were on an 800-foot uh, high kind of uh, hill that came out of the valley there, and they were taken out, basically. And like Sardis, uh, Phil- Philadelphia was also destroyed by that earthquake, but also repaired by the Romans. And so uh, the citizens there were uh, often very, uh, well, they, they built like statues to Tiberius and all this type of stuff. So they're very a pro-Roman city. Um, one of the other things there is that the citizens were kind of always on edge, um, obviously, because you, it, it, how many of you, like, now I'm not going to make everybody raise your hand if you come from the, either the other side of the state or from California where there are earthquakes. And so earthquakes are, are a real thing, and if you've been in them, you don't like them, or you kind of get used to them and sleep through them like I used to when I was a teenager, but um, they, they leave you really unnerved, and if your whole city comes down, uh, you tend to not want to go hang out in the city, and the, all the aftershocks that were happening, uh, so the city had a kind of PTSD situation going on there, but they would all leave, and they would go out into the valley, and, and they would stay in tents quite often instead of living up on the hill. They're like, I ain't going to go for that again, um, but the things that would be left in, in, in were, were as as you look at a temple, the columns would be left, and so there'd be columns all over the place. You see it in ruins today in Greece and other places, these columns that were left. Um, but like Sardis, the Romans helped them rebuild the city, and so they, they erected monuments to Tiberius. They even changed their name to Neo Caesarea, New, New Caesarea, and so, but that didn't stick. They renamed it to Flavia, uh, which is a rolling, uh, a ruling Roman family, and so it's known by both names, basically Flavia and Philadelphia. Those are the ones that stuck. But there was obviously just a strong ro- uh, love for Rome there. But like, like most of the other churches, um, the believers in Philadelphia were saved out of an overtly pagan culture. Um, they were there were just temples to all these different gods everywhere they went. And so um, the city was filled with temples to other gods. Uh, we don't know how the church in Philadelphia started. No, we really don't. We, we assume that it's because Paul spent time in Ephesus. That great wide door was opened to him in, in Ephesus, excuse me, Ephesus, Ephesians, Acts chapter 19, 10, where he was preaching the word, and it kind of went all throughout the region. And so we assume that that's how the church came about. Uh, we do know uh, that according to the seven letters, that only Philadelphia and Smyrna uh, were the only churches to have commendations from the Lord, just flat out like you're doing a great job. The rest of them had issues, um, both commendations and corrections. Two other ones just had corrections, no commendations. But the Lord had, had nothing bad to say about the believers in Philadelphia, so this should be a relatively light service. We're happy about that on Mother's Day, amen? And, and so in, in writing to the church in Philadelphia, the Lord describes himself to them, and, and he describes himself in a specific way. 
uh, verse 7 says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. And as we've seen in every single letter that the Lord's written uh, to, to his church, there's something that he is saying by his introduction about himself that he wants to reinforce to the church, either in correction or in warning or encouragement. So something about him, of what he just said to the church, uh, is, is very important. And to Philadelphia, he describes himself, number one, as the holy one. Second one, the true one. And thirdly, the one who holds the key of David. And as I mentioned, there is nothing corrective that the Lord has to say to this church. Praise the Lord. I mean, you want to open the mail from the Lord and him say, hey, you're doing a great job. Don't you? I mean, as opposed to, hey, I've got this sword, and it's sharp, and it's ready. I'm kind of, you know, it's like, ah, didn't want that letter. Well, these guys, this is the church you want to be in. And so many churches, you know, because there's no warning to these churches, so many of, these, of our churches today, when they read these letters, they go, we're the church of Philadelphia. We're always the church of Philadelphia. And I would just warn us, no, we're not. Um, just knowing me, knowing us, it's like, no, we're not. We've, we've all got things we've the Lord would seek to work on in, 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 in and through us. Uh, but many of you personally, I would say, you're, you're, a, little, you're a little Philadelphia. <laughs> but me, I'm, yeah, we're working on it. The Lord's going. Uh, but the Lord had only commendation and encouragement for the believers in Philadelphia. And, and, and a lot of why that is is picked up in Jesus' description of himself. He describes himself in a certain way that relates to them as they relate to him. And firstly, he says he is the Holy One. He wants them to know that he is the Holy One. This is the one who's writing to you, the Holy One. And you're like, okay, what is that? Well, this is a title for God. Flat out, Old Testament stuff you read about in Isaiah 19.22 speaks of the Holy One of Israel. Also in Psalm 78.41 and a whole bunch of other verses. It just kept, The list kept going on and on, so I just stopped there. Um, it's, it's a title for the Lord. The Lord God in the Old Testament, the Holy One of Israel. It's also a messianic title. Uh, messianic, meaning, like in Psalm 16:10, speaking about the Messiah who was yet to come, Jesus. It speaks about God not letting His Holy One see corruption. He will not let His Holy One speak, see corruption. So, well, who's His Holy One? That's Jesus. That's the Messiah. And it's speaking about the resurrection. He's not going to stay in the ground. He is going to rise again on the third day. And so that's a messianic reference. And so because obviously the, mess, the Messiah is the Son of God. But Peter also declares in the New Testament, in John chapter 6, uh, verse 69, remember all the disciples have left in John 6, 66. And, uh, and he, said, we, he says to Jesus, are you going to leave too? And basically Peter, Peter says, where else are we going to go? He says, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now when Jesus is saying, uh, when Peter's saying, we believe that you're the Holy One of God, he's, he's looking back and he's connecting the Messiah and he's connecting God. He's saying, you're, you're him. You are different than anyone who's ever come. You are the Holy One of God. In Mark 1.24, even the demons recognize that Jesus is the Holy One of God. In Mark 1.24, demon-possessed man at church or in the synagogue, he says in verse 24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons are declaring that he is the Holy One of God. And so this title, the Holy One, 
is ascribed to God, and, and really it speaks of also of the otherness of God. And, and if you get into theology, it talks about how, yeah, we're holy, we've been made holy, but God has always been holy. He is other than us. He is totally holy. He's just, and, and our words fall short in His otherness. And so they speak of the otherness of God in, in, about His holiness. And that's, uh, I like what R.C. Sproul said about this because he talks about things like this. He says, uh, the idea of holiness speaks to the profound difference between Him and us. Holiness encompasses His transcendent majesty, His august superiority, His distinct set-apart uh, from us. He's, he is distinctly set-apart from us. As one infinitely above us, He alone is worthy of our worship and our adoration. Moses asked, who is like you, O Lord, among the, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And so this is the one who is writing to the church in Philadelphia, the one who is totally other than, the holy one. This who is writing to them. And because Jesus is holy, uh, those who are his, through faith in him, have been made holy by nature to our relationship to him. Peter says in, in 2 Peter 1.4 that we now share in his divine nature. We have been made holy through the blood of Jesus Christ. His work on the cross has made us holy. We are now partakers in God. Can you believe that? That we are fellowship. We are not God's. We are his. We're his offspring and his nature is now in us by grace. And so by the Lord reminding them of who He is, the Holy One, He is encouraging them in their holiness that has not been compromised. That's what He's saying. He's saying, I'm the Holy One. Now, you know, if the Lord's saying, I'm the Holy One, and you're not holy, what's going to be going on? Yeah, I'm not. But what's happening is the Lord is saying, listen, I am the Holy One. And they're being encouraged. They're like, wow. And there's really, there's two aspects of holiness for us as 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 believers who have been redeemed. There's one, there's the aspect of holiness that says I've been set apart. We all know it means set apart. And the, the picture is that is like of something uh, that was used only for God, that it was not something that was common. It was, it was holy. It was set apart. Well, the idea is that we are holy. And the idea is that it's set apart from something and set towards something. And that's the idea of holiness for us, is that we have been set apart from sin, from wickedness, from rebellion, from all those things. The work on the cross of being born again, God has done that. He has set us out of the world. And actually, that's what the church means. We're the holy ones. We're the saints. What does that mean? We've been set apart from the world. That's what it means to be in Christ. You're set apart. You're no longer of it. You've gone from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light the kingdom of man to the kingdom of God, by His grace. You are out of this world, but you're in the world. You're set apart. But the other part of not only being set apart from something is you're set apart to something. And you're set apart to God. You're not just set apart from the world to go sit on, you know, sit in a lotus position on top of a mountain. You are actually set apart to God. That means for His will, for His purposes, for the things that He has called you to. And that's what the church is. We're a group of holy people. And you might go, ah. But yeah, truly, if the Lord has made us holy, we're to partake in His nature. We're to be set apart from the world, even though we're in it, we're not of it. And then we're called to what God has called us to. 
And obviously, he empowers us to do those things by his grace through the Holy Spirit. And so, Jesus is holiness personified. Jesus is holiness personified. Now, unlike us, Jesus didn't become holy, right? Just want to make sure you know that he didn't become holy. He always has been. He always will be. He is the Holy One, the eternal Son of God. But if you want to see what holiness looks like, just look at Jesus. You want to know what, how to walk this walk. You want to know how to follow uh, the Lord. You want to know what this life is supposed to be about. You read and you study and you look at the life of Jesus Christ and you see him in any given circumstance. That's how we're to act. When you see what he says, those are the, the ideas and the thoughts behind that. Amen? And so how he lived, how he spoke, how he acted, his motives, everything about him was holy. It was set apart. And as Christians, as imitators of Christ, the believers in Philadelphia, they had been set apart. And the Lord was encouraging me. He says, hey, I'm holy. You're, you're holy as well. I think that's pretty cool. And the Lord was encouraging them in that they were walking in his likeness. And the second thing Jesus said to them uh, is that he was the true one. The true one. And the true one means not fake. It means genuine. He's the real deal. And, you know, there's a lot of false Christ. There's a lot of that stuff going on. But Jesus was and is true in a world of lies. Jesus is true in a world of lies. Jesus is the truth. All the other ways that the world has told you to go, they're all lies. Jesus is the truth. And the way he proved it is he came down. He did what no one did. He lived. He died. He rose again. And he proved it to the world. And he ascended to the Father. And the world is trying to, through revisionist history, say, no, that never happened. No, he is true, and his testimony is true. He's genuine. Jesus personifies the truth. Everything Jesus said and did was according to the truth. That's how his his life was aligned, not as if he was following the truth. He was the truth. The truth came to us. It walked around among us. It showed us what truth was. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And he's being exclusive there. It's a narrow mind. Christianity is so narrow-minded. Just want to just go ahead and give that. It's such a narrow mind. Yes. There's only one way through Jesus Christ, and that's what he said, and he declared it. Anyone else are thieves and liars, and they're trying to get in a way that they shouldn't go, I'm it. Come through me. That's it. And we're going to see why he says, come through me, because he is the door and he is the key. But Jesus said he is the true one. The church in Philadelphia had not gone after the lie. And there were lots of lies around them. Tons of ways to go. They had not gone after the lie. They remained in the truth, in Christ, living according to his truth. And so likewise, the very character of Christ, the holiness, the truth, these should mark believers born of his spirit. Thirdly, Jesus said to him, he has the key of David. You're like, okay, what in the world is that? He's got the key of David. You know, King David, right? And that, that should be a key to us when we're trying to figure out things. Go back in the Bible, Isaiah 22 Verses 20 through 23, it speaks that what's being described there in Isaiah 20, 22, 23, when it speaks about the key of David, it, uh, there's, a, there's a 
bad king that's being removed and there's a good king that's being moved in. That's basically the, the story. A new king is going to take his place. And it reads in Isaiah twenty two twenty, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind, him, uh, will bind your sash on him, and I will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. This is what happens when someone becomes king. He's clothed, he's given authority, he's given power, he's brought into that position, and everything about him represents that. And verse 22 says, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, and he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg. Keep this verse in mind for later. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. Obviously, this is speaking a little bit further than Eliakim, wouldn't you say? <laughs> Looking forward to a greater king. And that's the point. Jesus is quoting this and saying, I'm that king. I'm the king over Israel. I'm the king over the kingdom of God. And guess who has the keys to all of it? Me. Jesus Christ has the key. He says, I have the key. I hold the key to David. <clears throat> A king has the keys to every door in every kingdom. Not just, check this out. Not just literally he can get into anywhere. What he says goes, and that's the idea. He opens doors, and guess what? You can go through that door. Guess what? If the king shuts the door, guess what's not happening? You're not going through that door. So as if the king can say something to you that you will do this, guess what will happen? You will do that. <clears throat> if he says you won't do that, guess what will happen? You won't do that. In other words, this is speaking about he is totally sovereign. Jesus is saying to this church, I am holy, I'm righteous, I'm with you, I am totally sovereign. I want you to know he's speaking to you. And Jesus is quoting from Isaiah there, almost verbatim there in Revelation 3, and that parallel is that he isn't the Eliakim. He isn't the temporary king. He's the eternal king. He is the king, not only over Israel, but over the kingdom of God. Jesus is the holy one, the true one, the Messiah, the king, and he has the key. Now, that key, what does it imply? The king can open any door and shut any door. <clears throat> and that's what he's saying. The king is sovereign. You're never going to get into the kingdom of God unless Jesus opens the door. Make sense? You're never going to get out of the kingdom of God if Jesus shuts the door behind you. <laughs> no man can enter except through the door. Who is the door? Who has the key? <laughs> it's him. See, church, we, we, worship, we worship a person. We worship Jesus. We don't worship Christian culture. We don't come to Christ through culture. We come through a person, and he has a culture. But we come through him. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. Anyone who comes to me, I'll let you come in. Come. Arms open wide. Come. The door is open to anyone. 
to come in. So you must go. Amen? Come in. The king is calling. But men don't want to come. But those who do, they find eternal life. But Jesus, the point is Jesus is sovereign over their salvation, over everything they face, over the open and closed doors in front of them. He is sovereign. And, and this is going to be key in what he has to say to them next, right? Uh, verse 8, he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you what? An open door which no one is able to shut. Why isn't he able to shut? Because who opened it? He opened the door. The Holy One, the true one, the one who has the keys, who can open and shut any door with absolute sovereignty. He knows their works. And he says, I have opened a door before you and no one's shutting it. That's awesome. Now, what is he talking about? What door? Something is talking about salvation, and I think that's, that's okay, too. If you walk away from this saying, hey, Jesus opened the door for the salvation. There's this church. They're just they're hanging on. They're staying holy. They're being faithful to the Lord. They're being held into the truth, and the Lord has opened a door. They're going to walk through it. I think that's okay to walk away with that interpretation. But there's a lot more support for the door being an effective door of ministry. That's kind of, that's kind of what's repeated several times by Paul in Scripture, that seems to be what, what, is, what the Lord might be talking about here. That either way, either door you go through is not going to be wrong. Uh, but what happens is, in, in Paul speaks about the door being open, like in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 through 9. Paul says, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? Because for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So notice open doors doesn't mean you're free of adversaries, just to let you know. <laughs> open door, many adversaries, but it's an effective work that's happening. Again, Paul speaks like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, uh, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there. He's looking for Titus, but he's going, man, there's an open door here. Big open door for effective ministry. So this is how he's talking about that. Again, in Colossians 4, 3, Paul asks for prayer for the church. He says, if you want to pray for me, this is how you can pray for me. He says, at, at the same time, pray also, this is Colossians 4, 3, that God may open to us a door for the word. Church, this is how we should be praying. Lord, open a door for the word for all of us. Pray that there would be an open door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Paul's in prison asking for an open door. Not to the cell, but for to preach where he's at. Isn't that pretty cool? And so the Lord could be saying that he has an open door for ministry. And that's kind of what I think he's leading to, that the church of Philadelphia has an open door that no one can shut. And it implies that they were walking through an open door that people wanted to shut. There was opposition to that door being open. And the Lord continues in verse 8 and says about them in their work in response to the door he opened. He says, I know you have but what? You have what? Little power, little strength. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The Lord points out to that church that they had little power. This is not a criticism. This is just stating the facts. 
that the door they're walking through, they've got a lot of opposition. And in comparison to the enemy that is around them and facing them and pushing it back against them, it seems as though they have little power. And interesting, who's the one talking to them with all power, all authority, all might? He says, I've opened the door. You walk through it. I know you have little power, but check out your works. And by the way, real quickly, the, the word little here isn't, is, is like the word for Zacchaeus, little in stature. So people say, well, it might be a little, a little church, just a little church. And they don't have many numbers. That, that could be true, but the, the emphasis is on their strength. They don't have power to overthrow what's happening around them. And this isn't about their spiritual power. They just, they're in a circumstance where it's dark, it's bad, it's ugly, they're overwhelming, and they're just oh, going through the door that God has for them. Can anybody relate? The focus seems not to be on the size of the congregation, but on their power. They have little power. Power being the word where we get the word dynamite. And I think the Lord's just simply saying they're facing powerful adversaries around them, more powerful adversaries around them. There, there's things that work. And in spite of having little power, they did what? They kept his word. And we find out in verse 10 that is his word for that church was, I want you to patiently endure. I want you to be faithful and patiently enduring. That means you're going to have to endure a lot, but be patient in it. Be steadfast in endurance. And they had kept that. They were patiently enduring. But not only they kept their word, <clears throat> he says, we haven't, you haven't denied my name. How many of you in the culture we live in have denied the name of Jesus Christ because your employer said you had to? Because the culture said you had to? Because the school said you had to? Because... Whatever it is, your friends, your family said you had to. In other words, when you had the opportunity to declare Christ, you didn't because the thing was overwhelming. These people did not. And I'm just saying that there is a pressure on all of us to shut up. Amen? To be quiet. To not declare His name in the midst of the darkness because of the suffering that we might endure. But see, listen, the door that the Lord opens for us often will have the opposition just hand in hand with that. <clears throat> what is the door that we're walking into? The door of roses and fields of green and fluffy bunnies running around? <laughs> no, the door is like into the darkness. I've, I've opened a door so the word can get penetrate the darkness that I came to bring my light to. Amen? And now you, I'm in you, and now you're in the world. Not of it, but you're in it. I've opened a door, now go shine. Amen? <clears throat> this isn't being belligerent. This is just saying, I haven't denied your name. Not only his name in speaking, but in character. And obviously, obviously you get the Old Testament to not to take the name of the Lord in vain. This is not simply say, don't say his word and his name in a, in a bad way. It means all that he is, his character, his reference, who he is, his name, what that represents. Don't Live in vain of that name of which you're called into. It's bigger than just saying it. It's living it. Amen? And these people did not. They did not recant. They didn't give in. They didn't compromise. They didn't lose hope. They remained holy. They remained faithful to the Lord Jesus. Amen? And God has provided open doors for us. And we immediately sometimes just go, oh, that's a closed door because then I would get in trouble. 
or whatever it might be, or I might face opposition. If not you, who else? Amen? You're it. You're the plan. I'm not the plan. I'm, I'm, I'm here encouraging you to go out to the slaughter. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I'll, go, I'll go with you. You know what I'm talking about, right? I'll make you go first, though. That's just <laughs> I know it's hard, church. It's hard. But you know what? He is holy. He's true. He's got the keys. And you just need to keep looking to him in all your circumstances. And he'll open the door. You just got to, in faith, walk through it and be faithful to what he's called you to do in your circumstance as a mother, as a father, as an employee, as a student, in whatever circumstance God puts you in. Be faithful to the Lord. Amen? You got to answer to him. Amen? And, you, and, and, and the thing is, the Lord just reminds them, says, listen, you've walked through the door. You've been faithful. I know people are wanting to shut that door, but you just keep going, right? And, and, and we know that they're having opposition because I read ahead. Uh, verse 9, <laughs> I know I cheated. Because verse 9 says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. So basically, he, and then if you kind of keep going, he says, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I love you. So they were experiencing persecution at the hands of Jews. And these Jews were saying that they were God's people. But Jesus is saying, no, they're of the synagogue of Satan. That's what's really going on. These Jews were giving them a hard time. And no doubt there was probably legalistic type stuff that was going on there. But Jesus makes the point to say that they were saying that they were Jews, but Jesus knows who is a true Jew and who is a false Jew. Now, without getting into the whole theology thing, just, just Romans 2 28 through 29, you'll want to write that down. I'll read it for you. But it's Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. This is from God's perspective. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. See, the things that would identify a Jew as a Jew is their one outwardly, what they wore, that they were circumcised, all that type of stuff. He says, That doesn't make you a Jew according to God. What is a Jew? What is a true Jew? What does that represent? He says, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. See, those things are symbols of being God's people, of being separated from the world, and circumcision is a, is a cutting away of the flesh, and the idea is the same as baptism. It's that the old life is gone. The new life has come in, separated from the world. It's a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God, right? And so there were Jews there who claimed that they were Jews, but in true, they were not God's people. And apparently, this was a force to be reckoned with, and they were wreaking havoc on the church, and they were persecuting the church, and they were pushing their weight around on the church. And the doors that they were opening and walking through, they didn't like it, and so they wanted to shut it and all this type of stuff. But the Lord says to his church in that last part of verse 9, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. They thought they were the ones that God loved, but they were blind. It was actually them that the, the Lord had loved. He loved his church. The Lord says, The table's turned. You have little power right now, but guess what? The power is going to be flipped in the age to come. They're going to be bowing before you. Now you have little power. You're before them. And they're making you do all this weird stuff or bow down before them, so to speak. And 
and you haven't done it, you've kept my name, you've denied my, you haven't, you've kept my word, you haven't denied my name, you're going through hard times, but guess what? The tables will be flipped one day, and it will be them who bows down before you. And I don't understand how that works out theologically, but all I know is that in Christ we rule and reign with him, and one day the nations, the, all the world, the non-believers will bow down before the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be with them. And maybe this is speaking about the millennial kingdom, but bowing at someone's feet implies total submission. A time will come when the Lord will vindicate them. Amen? Same with you. The tables will be flipped. And that's not for today. That's not for us to pick up our pitchforks. The Lord, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We continue to follow him. And so they, they will learn that I have loved you. On that day, they will finally see that the Lord loves his church. Jew, Gentile, whomever believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is, the, the, the Lord loves his church. I love that it's mentioned there. And then verse 10, we got to kick Cook in here. Uh, verse 10, another promise. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance... I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those those who dwell on the earth. The Lord promises to keep the church that patiently endures from the hour of trial. The hour of trial speaks, this is is biblical talk, for the seven-year period leading up before the return of Christ. This is the 70th week of Daniel, for those of you who are with us in Daniel. This is Jacob's trouble, the time of Jacob's trouble. This is the time when God's wrath is is poured out on the earth in a crazy way before Jesus returns. Um, And so this this promise obviously extends beyond Philadelphia to churches for all time. It's saying the promise that the true church will not face this hour of trial coming upon the whole world. Now, we already went into some detail about this in our study of Daniel. I'm not going to belabor all that, but I just want to point out a few quick things to remember about the hour of trial, about that seven-year period that's coming that is yet in the future. The first is that it's called a test. It's called a test. It's going to prove what is in man's heart. And that's the idea. It's going to prove what's in man's heart. God is going to pour out His wrath on the world in various ways, and men will either repent or they won't, and most will not, the, the Word says. Secondly, it's a time, a specific amount of time. It's not going to be forever. It's going to be a seven-year period. We know that. That's uh, the 70th week of Daniel. Um, it's called an hour. It's a figure of speech there. We know that this will be a seven-year period, starting with probably the peace treaty by the Antichrist made with Israel in the last seven years. And the middle point, all the great tribulation will happen, and at the end of that time, it will culminate in Christ's return, according to my understanding of Scripture. Thirdly, Jesus said it's coming upon the whole world. This is a global event. This is something that is not going, no, you're not going to get away from this. This is a global event. And lastly, it's aimed at those who dwell on the earth. That is a term over and over in Revelation for unbelievers. Those who are earthly, stuck to the earth. That's who this is for. And so what we see, and by the way, there's so many questions there, but I can't get into it. Come back to me afterwards. But so what we see is the Lord saying to Philadelphia, um, who by God's grace is a holy church, a true church, a church that's set apart, a church that's walking through the doors in obedience to the Lord. That's what the church is. Blood-bought following Jesus. Amen? To that church, he says, guess what? 
I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. And this is why I believe that the church is not going to go through the tribulation. Some say this is keeping them through, but that's, you can get into the Greek there, but that's not the situation. Keeping you from, out of. Those who do not deny his name. And so this is describing believers. Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. The true church is not going through the tribulation. We will be raptured before. But like I said, many people see this differently. I want to give you room there. But uh, guess what? We're not appointed to wrath. I know that. And God's wrath is going to be poured out. doesn't mean we're not appointed to hard times. Hard times are happening. But this is different when you get to that point of Scripture. This is God pouring out His judgment on the world. I don't think the church is going to be there, although the Jews will. And that's a different story. Um, then Jesus says in verse 11, let's, let's wrap it up here. He exhorts them. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Keep patiently enduring. Amen. Believers believe. Anticipating that the Lord could come at a shout at any moment for his church either or bring you home at any moment. Amen. Either way, hold fast that no one may take your crown. In other words, you don't want to lose your reward, so to speak. And, and I think there's always a tension there in Scripture. There's a tension that the Lord gives us. He's all, you're, you're saved, but that proof that you're saved is that you, is that you continue to follow me. And that's just kind of how it happens until the end. Because believers believe, and that's the way it, it's put there in Scripture. The Lord says, continue, that no one may take your crown. And he says there in verse 12, another promise. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes, I will make him a what? A pillar in the temple of my God. The imagery of a pillar in a temple, it goes back to Isaiah 22, 3, that one verse I told you to hold on to, that says, and I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of, of honor to his father's house. And this, this might have been with the imagery of the, of the tent and the tabernacle in the wilderness. In other words, it's a fixed place. What do you think about pillars? They don't go anywhere. They're not movable. They're structures that stay. Earthquakes come, things fall down, the pillars stay up. The, the building falls, so to speak. I'm going to make you a pillar in the house of my God. You're not going to leave. You're going to be there. You're going to be established. You can't be taken out. you got a bunch of people around wanting to yank you out of the kingdom to pull you to the left or to the right or to do all these things right now. They're wanting to go crazy and, and, and move your foundation. Stay steadfast. Stay steadfast. Hold your ground. I'm, I'm helping you hold the ground, by the way. <laughs> I'm the one who's willing in you to do it. At the same time, all these things working together. But the overcomer, the conqueror, the believer will be a fixture in his presence. You won't be going anywhere. Amen? You're not going to be a, a, you're imaged as a building there, but you're, in other words, you're as fixed as a building. You aren't going anywhere. You're, you're, you're there. No one will move away from the presence of the Lord when it's all said and done. Amen? The opposite of what the church was facing in their life, always being pulled out and pushed to depart from the Lord. And the Lord says, never shall you go out of it. You'll never leave my presence. You'll never escape my kingdom. I will shut the door behind you. Isn't that awesome? 
total absolute security. There's an imagery, again, of Philadelphia with all the earthquakes that made them flee the city over and over and over and over. There's going to be no fleeing in heaven when it's done. You're in. It's secure. It's locked. You'll be safe and secure forever. And Jesus goes on. He says, and I will write on the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of God from heaven, and my own new name. Three names. My God, the new Jerusalem, and a new name. I don't really understand the gravity of this, but the idea seems to be that we are gods, we have eternal citizenship, and we know the king. Pretty cool. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen? So, as I'm looking at this, I'm encouraged. As the Lord says, I'm holy, I'm true, and I've got everything in control. And I've put an open door before you. Keep my word. Keep my name. I've got you. Keep going. Amen? Let the Lord speak to you what he's saying to you. Maybe it's a challenge in this. Maybe it's, a, it's something that's gripping your heart. It's okay. Hear what the Spirit says and respond to the Lord. And may we be this beautiful church of Philadelphia. Amen? Lord, we want to thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for what you've given us. A picture of you and the beauty of your holiness in a church that follows you wholeheartedly in the midst of difficult times. And Lord, this, this season we've been in has been difficult. And I pray, God, that we would be able to run with horses, so to speak, in the time to come, that we wouldn't grow weary in doing well and pleasing you and following you and enjoying you and proclaiming you. I pray that as the dark seems to get darker, Lord, the church would get brighter, that we wouldn't let the dirt of the world on us, Lord, for any amount of time, but would walk in holiness. Cleanse our hearts, Lord, and Fill us with the joy of our salvation in the midst of this life. And let the world around us see the hope that we have. You are so lovely. Thank you for loving us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right. Have a wonderful week in the Lord. Amen? Amen. All right.